Hello, my name is Heath Brown. This is New Books in Political Science. Today I'll be speaking with Professor Enid Logan, who is the author of Barack Obama's Presidential Candidacy and the New Politics of Race. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and we are talking today with Enid Logan, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Minnesota. Hello, Enid. Hi. Welcome. Uh, I've had the chance to read this book of yours, um, and I hope that everyone listening to this has the chance in the future to read it. Um, what we're going to try to do is talk a little bit about the book and uh, some of your motivation for writing it and what you found and the way in which you pursued the book. But, but maybe we can start by giving you the chance to talk a little bit about who you are, uh, where you've been, and maybe where you were when you wrote this book. Um, Well, as you said, uh, I'm Enid Logan. I'm originally from uh, Maryland, College Park, Maryland. Um, Went to Yale for undergrad and Michigan for grad school. Uh, While I was there um, in grad school, I became particularly interested in studying uh, the black experience in the Americas. I ended up doing a lot of work in Latin America, specifically in Cuba. And I also had an abiding interest in looking at... um, race in the U.S., focusing on the black experience. Um, And, um, yes, I've been at the University of Minnesota for about seven years now. Um, I was tenured last year. And this uh, book is something that I um, completed and came out in um, October of 2011. Well, congratulations on tenure and and also congratulations uh, on the book. I, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, as a political scientist, reading the, the perspective that a sociology brings to issues of politics is always very interesting. And, yeah. and your take then is, uh, really does add, obviously, to your own discipline, but I think also really can add to what political scientists can learn about the campaign, about the presidency of Barack Obama, and, and all the different things that, that you address in this discussion of uh, the new politics of race. So what I'd like to do maybe do is start off early in the book and, and talk a little bit about what you did in setting up the book in chapter one. And uh, so very early in the book, you write, and I'm just going to quote from the book, uh, what looks kind of like your thesis, which is Obama won not in spite of race, but because he offered an appealing, carefully mediated version of blackness that a majority of the electorate readily consumed. Mm-hmm. How does this thesis challenge the conventional interpretations of the Obama victory? Well, the conventional interpretation in the media or the hegemonic uh, understanding was that Obama's election proved that race no longer mattered in the U.S. and that we had collectively as a nation transcended race or overcome race or that uh, the election proved that America was now race blind. And I just felt that it was clearly not the case. It was clearly something much more complicated going on. Uh, for one thing, uh, the the idea that people didn't see race or didn't notice race, to me it made no sense because the, the media and the press was literally saturated with race talk. I mean, there was, there were just hundreds and hundreds of articles and blog postings and uh, whole evening discussions on uh, the news or on the the evening news on the 24-hour cable news stations about Obama and his and his blackness and what it would mean to have a black president. So I felt like what was going on, rather than the election proving that we were all beyond race, was that 
the election was this moment for the nation to have a kind of new, in-depth conversation about race in this post-civil rights era to try to assess what do we think about race, what do we think about blackness, where are we as a nation um, at this point in time. And it was interesting that blackness itself was so very central um, to this discussion. So sort of in line with that, one of the things that was very impressive about the book was, was really the, am, the ambition of it, um, sort of the size of it. Despite being a relatively short book, the, the, the scope of it is, is really quite large. And, and in Chapter 2, you addressed sort of how you went about uh, taking on such an uh, ambitious project. And, and you write in that that, um, that you analyzed writing found in major newspapers, news magazines, widely read political blogs and other large media outlets and go on you go on to say it is vital that scholars uh, critically engage with these discourses one would gather that you believe scholars haven't paid sufficient attention to these discourses is that a methodological argument that you're making uh, in this book in in chapter two hmm. well I would say that my feeling is sometimes the discussions that we have as sociologists of race or as scholars of race are not divorced from, but somewhat tangential to the discussions that are going on in the mainstream. So sometimes we study what's particularly of interest to us as opposed to kind of doing a head-on confrontation or analysis with what's being discussed in the mainstream or the public sphere. Um, especially because it might seem non-academic. I mean, a big issue is how do you delimit or collect your data? So I think kind of methodologically one of the challenges for me in the book was I wanted to make sure to kind of fully capture the conversation that was going on out there in a way that was uh, balanced and representative, but there wasn't really a way to do that because the data set you know, couldn't really be delimited or defined in a way that, to me, wasn't artificial. Um, For example, there was a big uh, story. Say I had just decided to limit myself to, like, uh, the New York Times or the major newspapers um, in several major cities or, like, five different blogs. Well, there was a major story, uh, for example, found a quote that Geraldine uh, Ferraro had given to a Miami newspaper at the time I, the name of the paper escapes me at at the moment, but Mm -hmm. it was not a mainstream paper, but it was a paper in which, um, it might have been the Miami Daily Breeze, in which she said that, a paraphrase, that Barack Obama was lucky that he was black, and that if he wasn't black, he wouldn't have gotten as far as he had. Now, that story then became uh, a major part of the news cycle and a major part of what I call the basically, what I think is the chronology of the discussions about race, or the chronology of the discussion about race that took place during the uh, cycle, which was like, uh, which I count from 2006 to about the end of 2009, because people mm-hmm. the importance of uh, the election. And late 2006 is right before um, he declared his candidacy when it was pretty certain that he was going to run. But uh, so then this whole debate about, uh, you know, the salience of 
race versus gender? And was this a racist comment? And who has it worse, women or blacks? I mean, this kind of took off and, and was discussed in all the major outlets, but it started in kind of a, a, a more, uh, uh, not one of the central top uh, papers. Um, so I felt like it was really important to look at this event, at this election, you know, which is, of course, why I think it's so appropriate that to use this quote from Obama at this defining moment, um, because it was. Um, taken to be a defining moment for the nation uh, as something of tremendous political import. And I felt like, you know, if we're trying to make sense of what's going on in terms of race, we have to take these conversations that are happening, um, this, this kind of daily conversation in the press, which sometimes we look at as mundane or uh, unscholarly. We have to take this kind of discussion seriously. How did you know when to stop? Because I, I, I think that I'm um, very sympathetic with, with this, this sort of effort to, to expand beyond sort of the, the three um, network news coverage and maybe the, the handful of major newspapers. But how did you know when to, to as you said, uh, delimit? Uh, at what point was a did you treat a blog as just not critical or not widely read enough that you didn't include it in your readings or in, in what you were trying to interpret or analyze? Well, what it was, what I was trying to do is follow the major stories. So I think in the age of the, of the internet and the blogosphere, uh, we're going to have to develop new kinds of methodologies and new ways of thinking of um, how we collect data and what it means to say that something is representative. And this is a, definitely a challenge I confronted in this book. But basically, I was trying to follow the major stories. Um, um, and as I said, I kind of charted out a chronology. So I'd say, okay, this is February 2007 or March 2008. What are the major stories that are going on at this time? Well, we have the major issue of the debates over uh, Jeremiah Wright. Uh, incendiary uh, sermons uh, and and the tapes of his sermons being played over and over again. And then we had Obama's response of the uh, race speech of, uh, of March 2008 and how that was taken. So I followed the major stories and the major arguments that came out of these um, stories. Um, now, the only degree to which... Um, the extent to which I kind of search for lesser-known um, blogs or points of view um, and try to include them centrally was when I was trying to include the voices of bloggers and journalists of color, which was specifically in, um, I think, Chapter 6, where I looked at Latino and Asian-American voters, because these were, for the most part, marginalized voices, but I thought it was important to the kind of argument I was making in that chapter to specifically search out what are uh, Latino and Asian American voters saying about the way they're being represented in the press and saying about Obama um, himself. But for the most part, I was trying to do um, a critical analysis uh, informed by the race scholarship of the main the main current of debate that were taking place concerning Obama's candidacy. Now, you've brought up all of these things that I, I'm so curious about. So, so let me start with one of them, which is one of the 
really centerpieces of the book, which is in, in your, your treatment of the, 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 quote, race speech. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you write in Chapter 3 is that some observers have been very critical of the address, seeing it only classical, uh, uh, in, in an only classical color blindness and racial denial. You seem to reach a different conclusion about the speech. I wonder if you can you know, briefly recount where this speech occurred in the campaign and and how you interpreted it and maybe why your interpretation is a little different than the way others have interpreted it. Yeah, I actually thought that the race speech was kind of a moment of bravery um, or courage on Obama's part because I felt like there he... um, tried to take the points of view, um, as I say, he attempted to explain the black church tradition without reducing it to caricature and black frustration without reducing it to mythology, which uh, was very common sometimes he tended to do himself. Um, he says, while black anger was not always productive, it is, quote, real, it is powerful, and to simply wish it away or condemn it without understanding its roots only serves to widen the chasm of misunderstanding that exists in human rights. Now, what this was, was the speech that he gave in March of 2000 in response to kind of the the furor that had um, arisen over what what were taken to be very incendiary sermons given by his former pastor, um, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, uh, during the time that Obama was a member of the congregation uh, in Chicago. I think it was Trinity Trinity Church in Chicago. And um, so there were some arguments that, you know, because uh, so Jeremiah Wright, Jeremiah Wright was widely kind of caricatured or portrayed as a racist, um, a nutcase, a conspiracy theorist, etc., and the idea was that um, Obama, by having been affiliated with him, certainly shared some of these kind of views. And therefore, the whole pretense of his campaign or the promise of who he presented himself to be, meaning kind of a racially transcendent, transcendent candidate who would help to overcome these uh, racial divides, who um, was able to be a black politician who would not divide the nation, you know, that he was um, able to, who was fundamentally different from these other problematic such as uh, Jesse Jackson and such as Al Sharpton and such as Jeremiah Wright at this time. So the whole idea that he was uh, this kind of post-racial, racially transcendent candidate, this was called into question by the um, the idea that he was affiliated with Reverend Jeremiah Wright, um, and so it was a it was a moment that threatened to topple his entire campaign um, because of the fact that a lot of the excitement about Obama, as I've argued, was um, excitement about his race and the kind of black politician. The idea that the U.S. might elect a black man as president, but it was a certain kind of blackness and a certain kind of black politician. Um, that uh, had to be presented. Uh, he was, excuse me, he was a very specific kind of, of black politician. So the the idea of his uh, racial transcendence this was threatened by the idea of his affiliation with Jeremiah Wright. Well, rather than merely throw Jeremiah Wright under the bus, which was a uh, phrase used quite a bit at that time, 
um, and say, look, I just, uh, I disavow him, I'm separating myself from him. Uh, his first, uh, which he ended up having to do later on, or felt feeling like he had to do later on, his first attempt to address this was in this very bold speech on race. And it was bold in that, while it would have potentially seemed braver or a better path for him to try to ignore the race issue or sidestep it or just separate himself from right. He said, no, look, let's try to actually have an honest conversation about race and uh, think about black anger and why someone like Jeremiah Wright would be angry and make sense of it historically rather than simply dismiss it or say that it's paranoid or say that it's divisive. Um, Let's look at the black church, and rather than say it's a fount of conspiracy um, theories and superstition, let's look at the uh, the important role of this institution um, in the black community and also in the U.S. So for these reasons, I felt like in this instance, um, he kind of pushed back against uh, the one of the tendencies in the dominant narrative about Obama and his election was that you know, being that his campaign was just a complete slam dunk on uh, black politics. It was kind of the end of traditional black politics and black politicians. So in that moment, I think he tried to legitimize the voices of uh, black political protests and to say, you know, there, there are reasons that, you know, there's a historical basis and a material basis and a contemporary basis for these kinds of concerns that should not be so easily dismissed. Now, this all links very well in in just that chapter to what you describe as the seven principles of the new politics of race. And you describe these on page 37. One is adopt an open and friendly manner. Number two, give up the language of grievance and victimhood. Number three, play down the significance of racism. These are These are important parts, contributions of the book. I wonder what you think these seven principles, what role they played in the 08 election, whether one of them was particularly significant in in shaping either the larger narrative or the new politics of race. How did you get to these principles and and what do they mean for the book? What is is the role they play in in your book? Okay, well, as I say in a footnote, there is no magical number of seven. Uh, it was kind of my read of, you know, these, you know, I say that the, the book is based on somewhere over 1,500 different uh, news sources or articles, blog postings, other forms of public commentary. Um, so based on my read of uh, all these discussions of the new politics of race, this idea that there was a new black politics. Barack Obama was frequently referred to as a new type of black politician, a post-racial black candidate, and there was all this discourse or all these discussions about this idea that there was a new politics of race or a new racial calculus that was coming into play with Obama's ascent. Um, So... um, the idea was, what I wanted to do was take a critical look at what are these new politics of race and what function are they serving um, politically and socially. And um, and what my argument is that they basically function as a set of rules 
or racial etiquette for uh, black Americans and other non-whites um, in exchange for full incorporation into the, main, the wider society. So one thing I thought was really interesting is I had read a, a fairly widely into a subset of the political science literature on deracialization de- um, and this idea that black candidates had achieved more success, I think, since the um, 80s and 90s by some, by taking different kinds of views on race or uh, emphasizing race less or thinking about race, talking about race or blackness differently. Um, and I wanted to broaden um, and kind of enlarge upon this idea and think about how it applied not only to blacks in politics, but blacks in the wider society. So I saw the new politics of race as being a kind of set of prescriptions, not just for blacks in the political sphere, but as I said, for uh, basically middle class, professional class blacks in general, kind of a code of conduct um, for integration into the wider society. And I think this becomes a really important issue or it's very relevant because of the, um, the politics of class in the black community, the fact that we have a more and more bifurcated class structure um, with uh, blacks um, who uh, a split between blacks who are middle or professional class and blacks who um, uh, experience intergenerational poverty. And that we have, you know, rather than kind of a, a like a, a broad middle, that we see more and more of a split. And that blacks tend to be framed, African Americans, I believe, are being experienced race differently based upon class and are racialized differently based upon class. So therefore, I think that the kind of imagery, stereotypes, expectations that are applied to African Americans are more and more um, diverging or beginning to be bifurcated along lines of class. Well, the new politics of race for me um, seem to be, as I said, a set of expectations for blacks in this um, kind of upper socioeconomic tier. How do you deal with the issue of your blackness in the public sphere? How do you relate to whites? How do you um, how do you relate to um, or help us understand these very problematic uh, uh, lower class or underclass blacks, etc. And so Obama, by seeking to be president of the United States, was forced to deal with all these questions head on. And I felt like these were the things that were being asked for him. These what I've listed as these seven principles. Um, now, your question being was, were any of these more salient than the others? I think that they were all interrelated. However, there's one that I really, number three, I don't need to get to racism that I really Well, I think each of them, I think each of them, each of them was important. Uh, I do think that number three was was especially important. Um, I guess maybe another way that I could phrase that question would be sort of implicit in each one of these is that there is a a, a risk in um, fulfilling the principle. Um, And I guess another way to sort of turn the question around is, is, is something greater at stake with fulfilling one of these seven principles? Is there something that's lost when you... Uh, conform to these principles um, because as I think you described there's nothing 
there are, are many positives associated with these principles, but there's a there's other things that are that are at, at stake. Um, is that a way to think about the, the way you put together this chapter, the sort of really what the stakes are for buying into the new politics of race or trying to adhere too closely to a set of principles like this? You know, that that is a good question. I have not thought about it explicitly in that way. Uh, except, well, to some extent I have. You're, you're right. I, that's, that's an interesting question. I think so. I think what it pertains to is what uh, journalist Amina Luckman referred to as Obama's tightrope. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of walking this tightrope between wanting to be accepted to find a way to be uh, um, integrated into the wider society in which we are, um, for the moment, still a numerical majority, and, and certainly in which whites hold by far the majority of uh, access to resources, be they economic, uh, obviously political, in terms of jobs, in terms of schooling, etc. So how to navigate and relate and um, be integrated and, and have influence in these spheres. Now, the challenge is how do you do that without, um, I don't want to actually think about, it. so the simplistic wording would be being a, a sellout or kind of betraying your community. There's certainly better language than if I were to. Yeah, I think something as simple as the, the trade-offs yeah. that one makes, what what you give up, right. um, you know, that there there's uh, to use the sort of the crude language of economists, the opportunity cost yeah. of of this is 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 another maybe not a better way to to language, but a, a different language. Well, you know, I said for example that for Obama, the new politics race for something I said that he played them to win, but he did not establish the rules of the game by himself, uh, by, by any means. These were expectations that were put on him as well. And so a, a lot of times it was portrayed in the press like, oh, Obama is doing all these great things because he's, you know, he's showing, uh, I think after his Iowa win, uh, George Will and Bill Bennett together made similar comments like Obama has shown the black community that you don't have to be an Al Sharpton or a Jesse Jackson. You can talk about the issues. You know, he's he's basically shown them, that, you know, that they have learned, you know, they can learn how to uh, engage in responsible, um, non-hostile debate. And the, the tightrope that Obama was walking or the challenge that he faced was, how do I present myself in an open, friendly manner as a non-threatening black candidate, as a uniter, and not a divider, and not simply um, help to basically um, reaffirm this denigrating narrative uh, about the pathologies of the black poor and about uh, this idea, reinforcing this idea that uh, any problems or challenges that blacks face are solely due to their own personal failings or um you know, basically repudiating the whole history of black struggle in the U.S. Um, So this, uh, you know, this being a challenge that he would face personally and that other blacks would face as well. Um, I think the main challenge, uh, one of the main challenges lies in this uh, number five, repudiate the choices and lifestyles of the black poor. I think there was a kind of hunger for Obama 
to, um, you know, agree that uh, poor black people were a really problematic people and who needed to be uh, lectured to, they need to be held in line, they need to be held accountable. Um, and there are certain extents, certainly, to which he seemed to engage in a lot of scolding of um, what he called uh, Uncle Jethro or Cousin Pookie, etc. Um, and so there was a lot of ambivalence and kind of back and forth about what Obama was doing. Was this a strategy for just for him to get in, in office? Was it just something that was expedient? Did he really have these kinds of beliefs? Was he talking down to black people, as Jesse Jackson suggested? Or was he just being real about the importance of personal responsibility? So this was kind of a, a debate about kind of trade-off. Um, how do you make it? How do you get... Uh, how do you get ahead without kind of betraying your community um, in in politics? But also, I think this was a, a struggle and a set of questions that resonated for black professionals as a whole in their own lives. No, there's a lot of other very good stuff in the book, but but uh, I, I really like the way some of the ways that you ended the book and. I was wondering maybe if you might read something uh, of a concluding nature from the end of the book to to wrap up and, and give us a little uh, better feel of, of the actual writing writing in the book. Okay. Okay, I'm going to read a few different uh, paragraphs. Um, so, the conclusion. One of the goals of this book has been to uncover the subtle and blatant ways that race was used against Obama by his liberal and conservative opponents alike. His liberal opponents being uh, the Clinton campaign. But anyway, let me read. But an even more important goal of the work has been to demonstrate the ways in which Obama's race contributed to his electoral appeal. Obama brought to the forefront a new kind of black public persona, quote, mainstream, articulate, less angry, and less confrontational. Far from transcending race, however, Obama was still clearly marked as black. The antidote to the Jacksons and Sharpies, he offered a way through the stagnant and stilted racial politics of recent decades. In some ways, Obama seemed to answer, seemed the answer to many of the anxious questions that have been posed about race in the 21st century. While campaigning on a message of unity, hope, and change, Obama was clear nonetheless that he would make no race-based demands of white Americans nor attempt to significantly modify the existing racial order. Uh, later I say, um, to be clear, I believe that the election of Barack Obama represented a definitive positive step for the nation overall. Um, but uh, I do agree with some critiques of him, and I say that President Obama has not generally shown the kind of leadership in dealing with uh, racial matters that he did uh, temporarily in his race speech. Um, he tended to shy away from discussions of race and to declare accusations of racism made by his political allies to be invalid. His infamous July 2009 Beer Summit uh, read largely as an apology to white Americans for having raised the issue of institutional racism in a forceful manner. Um, for, okay, so then the last paragraph, I say, Barack Obama found a way of dealing with the issue of race in the U.S. and enabled him to ascend to the White House. This was a major accomplishment. But Obama's brand of racial politics becomes deeply problematic to the extent that it justifies keeping further scorn on the most economic 
economically and politically marginalized people of color, or that it requires upwardly mobile non-whites to join in the chorus of condemnation in exchange for integration and acceptance, or to the extent that it invalidates the pursuit of racial inequality in fact, rather than merely in principle. While Obama's successful campaign for the presidency was an important historic breakthrough, it certainly did not represent the nation's definitive triumph over the problems of race. Not only because we are still profoundly unequal in many non-electoral domains, such as housing, education, criminal justice, wealth, and so on, but also because the way that race factored into Obama's own ascent was complicated and problematic. Barack Obama helped to create a space for new conceptions of national identity and a new kind of racial politics. But we must continue to push that debate. Enid Logan, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Dr. Logan's book, Barack Obama's Presidential Candidacy in the New Politics of Race, has been published by NYU Press. You can get a copy of the book at www.nyupress.com. My name is Keith Brown, and this has been New Books in Political Science. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Dr. Logan. Thank you.